Hey, it's Martine. It's Friday, April 1st, and today we have a special show lined up for you. Last year, we brought you the story of Jessica Montanaro, an ICU nurse from New York City who found herself battling exhaustion and grief as New York became the epicenter of the pandemic, and she cared for wave after wave of patients. Today, we're going back to Jessica to see how she's doing and how things have changed for her after a full two years on the front line of the pandemic. This story is brought to you by producer Bishop Sand, who reached out to Jessica earlier this year, only to discover that she herself was sick with COVID. Okay, here's Bishop. I reconnected with Jessica back in January, on a Thursday. Hey, Bishop, don't get scared by my voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'll scare you off. (laughs) Two days before that, she had tested positive for COVID. What was it? uh, Monday night, probably not feeling great. And then Tuesday, definitely not feeling good. Took a nap, woke up, had a fever. And immediately I was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) there's no doubt in my mind, you know. And then she progressed and I got tested. why, why, why Why was there no doubt in your mind? Just because once you have a fever, I think, you know, I think that's like the red flag. She had severe fatigue. She was coughing and couldn't take a full breath. But she wasn't headed to the hospital, for reasons that we'll get into in a minute. Jessica couldn't pinpoint exactly how she'd gotten COVID. Maybe the virus was floating around at her daughter's volleyball match. Or at her husband's pizzeria in the Bronx. Or it could have been from a surge of patients in her ICU at Mount Sinai Morningside in Manhattan. The Omicron wave had just hit its peak. And and it felt like a March 2020. More than 4,000 healthcare workers have died across the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic. But something about Jessica had made her seem invincible up until now. In fact, we had a long-standing joke in among my family and in with my colleagues in the ICU that I was bionic because people were getting it left and right. And I have been in so many situations where I should have gotten it, and I didn't. She didn't get COVID during the first wave of the virus hitting New York, when everyone was scared and everything was scrubbed. Even the ballpoint pen she used was thrown away afterward. She didn't get it at home either when she was caring for her then 10-year-old daughter, Francesca, and her husband, Paul, both of whom had COVID in 2020. Last summer, Jessica faced the Delta wave as the charge nurse who manages the other ICU nurses, and didn't get it then, but she did get sick. And um, I had a complete full-on post-traumatic stress response. I, I legit sat my husband down and I said, Um, If I have COVID, I'm not going into the hospital. I'm going to die at home. I'm not getting on a ventilator. Like I sat down with my family and I said, this is what's going to happen. This is the plan. These are the doctors I want you to call. So so you made arrangements to like end of life arrangements. Oh, 100%. The first time that I thought, yes, a thousand percent that I was absolutely not going into hospital to die of COVID. But then, in January, she got it. COVID had finally cracked the defenses of this bionic nurse. Only Jessica wasn't as panicked about dying this time. Now, with this one, um, I don't, because I've been triple vaxxed, um, I think that was like a 
you know, a slight concern. It probably wasn't as intense. But I did call the, the doctors and I said, look, you know, if things go south, you know, I'm putting you on notice. We're putting a plan in place because I'm not being restrained to a bed with paralytics. I'm telling you right now. I think that's a genuine fear from people who have lived seeing what we've seen constantly right for the last two years. Back in December, New York State updated its guidelines for healthcare workers with COVID. Following guidance from the CDC, the state shortened the recommended recovery time from 10 days to 5. What that means is that Jessica will have to return to work in just a few days, as long as she's been fever-free for 72 hours and her symptoms are improving. What does that feel to you? Is it like... Oh, it's ridiculous. It's not like I have a job where I sit at a desk and I'm dealing with paperwork, right? So I'm physical for 12 hours. Um, You know, a lot of times don't take lunch, don't take breaks, uh, eat as I work. And, you know, I'm lifting humans (laughs) for a lot of places. (laughs) We agree to check in daily until she returns to work. I also ask her to record herself and her family at home. Sounds good. Will do. With Jessica forced to slow down, I'm hoping she'll be able to reflect on this past year and what she's been going through. Okay, thank you so right. much, Jessica. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Jessica calls me the next day, a Friday. It's the third day of her allotted five away from the hospital. Hello? Hey, Bishop. How are you? She ticks through her symptoms. So I've had a fever now on and off since Tuesday. We're today, Friday. Um, but I've been sleeping on and off. You obviously can hear I'm congested. I have my 78-year-old in-laws picking up my kids from school. But yet, technically, I will be cleared as of Sunday to go back to work. As if, like, nothing's wrong. Right. For Jessica, the five-day recovery policy is just another item to add to the list of hardships she's faced over the past two years. The exhausting shifts, the surge of patience, witnessing so much death, and above all, the fact that there simply have not been enough nurses. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, more than 400,000 nurses and residential care workers have left the profession since the start of the pandemic. We have a mass exodus happening. I think at one point there were 600 vacancies without, throughout the whole entire system, um, wow. which is insane. I know that for the ICU, at one point uh, we were up to 20 vacancies in uh, just my ICU alone. The remaining nurses are responsible for more patients, sometimes three or four instead of just two. That's the recommended number for the kind of very sick patients who get treated in the ICU. So Jessica says it becomes nearly impossible to provide the best care. And that has been really upsetting. The moral and ethical distress cannot be underestimated for nurses who are true nurses who really care about delivering that quality of care. And when you've got a patient ratio outside the recommended two to one, in a critical care setting, um, you know, it's almost impossible to meet the the demands of that the critical care, you know, medical world 
requires you to meet <laughs> to sustain mm-hmm. life the way you mm-hmm. have to. It's not yeah. really up for debate. <laughs> These problems just got worse when so many healthcare workers were sick during Omicron. I mean, I think two weeks ago, the nurses were beside themselves and there was so much going on. And yet we were being pushed by administration to do the impossible. And I, I was the front line saying, you can't do this. They can't do this. The nurses cannot do this. Jessica describes herself as a, quote, middle-of-the-road nurse. She sympathizes with both the needs of management and healthcare workers. Although she's a longtime member of her union, the New York State Nurses Association, she hadn't always taken an active role in it. But this past fall, something changed. And um, it was getting exhausting. It was really like just getting out of control to the point where I'm like, how are we going to sustain this? We're losing not just good nurses, but years of experience are walking out Mm. the door. Full-time staff nurses were being replaced by travel nurses who work short-term contracts for the hospital. Jessica had counted nearly 60 travelers the month before. There were also a lot of new nurses being hired. We have to hope they can work up to par, right, and train them. All this is happening, and there was no effort whatsoever made towards retention. She says at this point, the hospital focused on filling the vacancies. There were some solutions that administration came up with mm-hmm. that totally were a slap in the face to the nursing profession. Jessica didn't want to get into specifics here, but I learned from her union that residents, that is, doctors in training, were being paid overtime to fill in the nursing gaps. Nurses, meanwhile, weren't getting paid overtime, and this upset them. So the nurses did something to call attention to the working conditions. A bunch of us got together, and we wrote a letter to the union, and we wrote a letter to management. In the end, they sent about 50 emails to the union, saying, We uh-huh. want you to get involved to stop it. These uh-huh. are the reasons why. We need uh-huh. you to focus on, you know, how we can get the nurses some retention, pay, continued hazard pay, something. Uh, we need to stop this mass exodus of nurses in the ICU. We sent Mount Sinai a list of questions and reached out for comment. They didn't get back to us. But the union says that the hospital eventually stopped using residents to fill in for nurses, and that nurses received some overtime pay. The most immediate impact of the emails, though, was that it impressed the leadership of the nurses' union. They reached out to Jessica and tried to get her more involved. But she had been a middle-of-the-road type nurse. She'd have to think about it. The next day was Saturday, day four of Jessica's allotted five days off from the hospital. Um, I just woke up like about 12 and we have a nor'easter upon us. Um, And I would say that while I might not sound great, I am feeling like I'm starting to turn a corner, which is great. I am going to just check my pulse ox and my uh, temperature since I'm waking up for the first time. 
So my temp is 98.9, which is wonderful. My saturation is back up to 98. It was 96 the other day. Earlier that morning, Jessica had missed a call from the employee's health division. Uh, they call me every day uh, with bated breath to anticipate my arrival back to work. <laughs> um, but I missed that phone call this morning because, ironically, I was actually sleeping and getting rest. So I guess it's of high priority to them that I answer the phone and uh, not sleep. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it feels like that a little bit. Um, so we are buried under snow and Francesca actually has one of her friends stuck here, sleeping here. Hey guys, did you like the pancakes? Jessica says her 12-year-old daughter Francesca is a cool kid, playing volleyball, hanging out with her friends in their hot tub out back. She's used to both of her parents working long hours, her mom at the hospital and her dad at his pizzeria. I had asked Jessica to record herself with her family. So she sat down and talked to Francesca about their being away at work so often. So just wondering, you know, how has that maybe shaped your life right now? Or does it bother you? Or, what, you know, has, how has it affected you? Um, I think that uh, right now I'm really my own person and I'm pretty independent. But I sometimes here and there I do really miss you guys. And mm. I want to spend more time with you guys. But I understand that with the jobs that you guys have... You're saving lives, and that is a really big thing. And Dad is feeding people who are hungry and who, he's just like, you guys are both amazing. He's a good so, guy, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I know, you're pretty understanding. When Jessica first shared this conversation with me, I wasn't ready for what she said next. Um, I have a question, actually, that just came into my mind at this very moment that I hope you can answer honestly. I hope I don't put you on the spot. But um, I talk about death a lot, I guess, as an ICU nurse. I don't think I make it scary for you, but does that bother you? No, actually, I'm being really honest. It yeah. does not bother me. Really? I really don't know why, but I'm just not scared of death or hearing of it. It's, I mean, we do talk about that a lot. It's not something that <laughs> scares me because I think that if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And... Honestly, there's I almost feel like death has been normalized in this house. Yeah, it <laughs> really has It really has been. But to be honest, death does not scare me in the way that you put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just think, what do I... We talk about a lot in this yeah. house, right? Like, if you live your life in what a good and kind way, and then, we obviously have faith, you really have nothing to, to worry about, right? Yeah. I love you. I love you too. All right. That evening, I got a voice memo from Jessica. Even though she'd been feeling better, something unexpected happened. I literally went upstairs and doused my shirt in perfume and I do not wear light perfume and I cannot smell it. 
I ate some pasta and I can't taste it. Just like a switch getting flipped, her sense of smell and taste were gone. I am I'm just blown away right now. Grateful to be living. Not happy I can't taste or smell. This disease, which had already upended her profession, started her on a path to advocacy and pushed death up close, still had more surprises in store for her. After the break, what happens when Jessica is slated to return to work and how she persists in the pandemic. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. The next time I spoke to Jessica, it was Sunday, the last day of her allotted sick time. Hey, so good morning. She had just had a call with the hospital and was cleared to go back to work two days later, though she still wasn't feeling great. And I feel sweaty, uh, but definitely coming to the home stretch. Her husband, Paul, had been taking care of her when he could get away from his pizzeria. Good morning. My husband's leaving for work now. (laughs) This poor guy. Yeah, he's kind of been on the move every day with this snow and working a lot of hours. But um, he's been wonderful at taking care of me. Uh, Anything I need. We talked about this later. She's used to giving care, not receiving it. It's uncomfortable. (laughs) And, And in my heart, And in my being, like, I really know that that's there. And I know that if things ever really got bad, um, I have a lot of people around me, but it's still not entirely comfortable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just not for whatever reason, you know, there's just, um, I'd rather just be giving than getting. Yeah. When she reflects on giving care, her mind goes back to the ICU and all the different ways she cares for patients and their families. It's almost like it's dawning on her how much she'll have to give when she steps back through those doors in just another day or two. In some way, that's what I do every day, right, in nursing. Taking the time in the middle of an insane day to realize that this husband needs me to be with him right now. Mm. You know, or this child who just got a phone call that her father was hit by a car and now he's with me. And her mom just had a stroke, and she's looking at me with tears. I can't be like, sorry, I got to go give some meds. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's also like a training I've had for 20 years now of just having to show up and, and, and be there. So it's really not comfortable when it comes back. Last fall, 
After weighing the decision for a while, Jessica decided to step out of the middle of the road, so to speak, and into union leadership. This gave her a voice and a vote when they negotiated things like staff allocations, overtime pay, and new contracts. It's a lot different dealing with a nurse who has opinions and who reaches out to people versus dealing with a nurse now who is part of the executive committee of a union where I have voting rights and I have uh, privy to information and meetings that I wouldn't have had before. In December, Jessica helped organize a protest against what the union saw as unsafe working conditions. In the past few months, these kinds of nurses' protests have cropped up everywhere from L.A. We feel like they let us down, our, you know, our complaints. To rural Maine. Increased risk of preventable medical errors and even death. In this sense, it's striking to think about how much things have changed since the start of the pandemic. In New York, nurses were called heroes. Police escorted them to and from their shifts. At 7 o'clock every night, a whole city cheered them on. And now, a nurse's protest barely makes the local news. In addition to working at the hospital, Jessica also teaches the next generation of nurses. I asked Jessica if she's real with them, if she goes into the hardships of being a nurse right now. I don't sugarcoat it. On my last class, I always end with the realities of nursing, the short staffing, the probably not taking your break, you know, the long hours. Um, but I think if you're in it for the right reasons, you can still find some, some gratitude. Another thing she doesn't sugarcoat for her students, being a nurse means dealing with death a lot. Death may be somewhat normalized in Jessica's house and in conversations with her daughter, but for her nursing students, it's still new and shocking. Not long ago, students were in the room when a patient died right in front of them. Um, they were very upset. There was a lot of tears. And um, I made them, you know, once we gathered ourselves and got everything together, I, I made them take a break. And then I made a decision that we, as a class, were going to do the postmortem care on this patient together. And um, A, I felt that was important to help give them, you know, some peace and closure. And also B, I wanted to teach them the, how sacred that process was as a nurse. And it's not religious, right? And nobody brings their religion into it, but it's a sacred process to prepare a dead body. Um, and I thought it was really important for them because they were there when he died. I'm sorry, I need to breathe. Whew. My stats are good, but for whatever reason, this week has just been a little harder to take, catch my breath. Hey, how are you? 
Hey, good. How are you? Uh, hanging in. I'm hanging in there. I checked in with Jessica yeah. that Sunday. Yeah. She was yeah. scheduled to go back to work the next day. Like, project yourself out in the future. Like, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? I mean, listen, it's an ICU. Um, I never know what I'm going to walk into. Am I going to walk into, is there going to be like a mass casualty today? Is there going to be three traumas? Is there going to be no staff and five admissions? You know, so, so you just kind of never know. She's been worried about her lungs. She thinks she might have pneumonia. You know, my chest is not feeling great. So I'm actually going to go tomorrow uh, when I'm at the hospital just to get an x-ray. But she is cleared to go back. And from what I gather, she's kind of rationalizing why she ought to go back. I really also think it's important for me to keep moving, and I think I've done enough laying around. I think I need to make an effort to go. Um, I think it'll be good for my mental health. I think it'll be good for, uh, you know, my lungs to move around and not be kind of stagnant. I also, if something comes back on the x-ray, then I'll have to reevaluate the course ahead. Jessica was going back during the tail end of the Omicron surge. At the time, there were more than a thousand COVID ICU patients hospitalized across the state, and nearly 23,000 nationwide. It was the latest wave, and Jessica was jumping back in. The next day, less than a week after she first tested positive, Jessica returned to work at the hospital. Okay. Making it upstairs. And I'm a mess this morning. Not feeling great, but here we go. Morning. Hey. How are you? Sorry. Good. Hi. I don't hear a big celebration for her return. No party. She's just another nurse who's gotten COVID and made it back. (coughs) It may be because I'm listening for it, but I hear that exhaustion that she's told me about so much. But also resilience. Within minutes, she jumps right back into work. It's as if she never left. Later, she calls me from the break room. How are things going? Not bad. It was a <laughs> rough start to the morning, for sure. Um, what made but, it rough? Uh, just feeling like I didn't have a lot of energy. I was feeling like a little winded, um, very congested. But I um, actually, my, that chest pain that I was having has really improved since yesterday. Okay. So um, less concerned. I ask her how busy it's been in the ICU that day. Manageable, she says. And she brings up the Q word. You know what that is, right? No, what is it's that? It's taboo in nursing. You, you, just, you just never say it's quiet. You never, ever say that. And when <sighs> someone says it, like, you want to hit them. <laughs> <laughs> the minute you say that, all hell breaks loose, usually. The next week, I called Jessica to check in one last time. Are you feeling better? 
I am. I am. I really right. am. I think I sound better. I mean, I'm much coughing much less, thank God. Um, yeah. Paul's actually feeling, I mean, he's not 100% by any stretch, mm-hmm. but he's feeling better. It turns out her husband, Paul, had also gotten COVID again. And he quarantined for the five days until he was, a, yeah, he was positive. He's feeling better. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Move forward. <laughs> <laughs> Get COVID, move forward. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really yeah. make the best of it. And that's probably one of the biggest changes where Paul maybe doesn't understand this about me. My attitude is, well, it kind of more has shifted towards, like, we're all going to die. And I know that's not a great way to think. And it doesn't mean, like, not to take care of yourself or put money in the bank. It just means, like, the reality is I've seen so many people die that are young for no reason. Um, but it kind of shifts your perception, you know? Into, into what, though? Make every day the best. Be happy. Stop, you know, not everything's so serious, you know? Hmm. Kind of just hmm. realize that tomorrow you might not be here. You know, I mean, I, I I started feeling this way when I did oncology nursing because I remember, like, I can't tell you how many people I would have that would, um, you know, be like, oh, these are my golden years and I just retired and I saved money and now I'm sitting here, you know, in a chemo chair getting chemotherapy. Um, so I think that started shifting for me, but it was solidified during COVID for sure, <laughs> you know. Even though COVID made things worse, Jessica says the working conditions were bad before COVID, and they'll likely be bad after it. So she repeats the mantra, move forward. But it gets harder to keep moving forward. And lately, even this seemingly bionic nurse, who has shown up for her patients and her fellow nurses through two years of pandemic, is pulling back. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel happy. It doesn't feel gratifying. It feels like I'm just showing up. I feel much more apathetic towards, you know, the cause, if you will, and and it has everything to do with the treatment and the working environment. Now, in early April, there are fewer and fewer COVID cases in New York and around the country. Mask mandates have been relaxed. Vaccine mandates, too. I want to use the Q word to describe this moment in the pandemic. But with cases rising in much of Western Europe, and China imposing a new round of lockdowns, I won't do it. I won't jinx it. As we enter year three of the pandemic, I think there is something to that deep nurse instinct that at any moment all hell could break loose but if things are manageable it's a good day this story was reported and produced by bishop sand and edited by robin amer That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Lexi Diao and Ted Muldoon. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnik and Renee Spronofsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.